Non, c'est ce que je disais. Vous le voyez, s'évader, c'est de la blague. Après tout, tout est beau. Il n'y a qu'à s'intéresser aux choses et les trouver belles. Time has come. Catherine Bigelow. This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? <laughs> Did he spoil me? I remember quite clearly, it was 1946 and I was four years old, my mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. Michelangelo Antonioni. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do that. Three artists. In the presentation of the Palm d'Or. Adele, Leia, and Abdel, Abdel, Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Filmotomy podcast. This is episode 39. And on this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about scandals. Interesting choice of uh, subject in terms of what's been going on, but uh, in the the Filmotomy scene. So this is going to be fun. So um, we're joined today with a very special guest. Hi there, Lucy. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. Um, do you want to sort of uh, uh, introduce yourself and your site and, and what you do and why we've got you on? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So my name's Lucy and I have a blog called Lucy Goes to Hollywood, which I kind of just ripped off from a band, but never mind. <laughs> like, I thought it was fitting, you know. Um, so I do a lot of different reviews ranging from mainstream to indie. I have my own column called Short Film Saturdays, which is just about short films, which I do every week. Um, and today I'm going to be talking about my favourite Hollywood scandal with you guys. Um, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, we're glad to have you. And also, <laughs> um, I've got the wonderful Doug joining me again. You've got quite a juicy scandal, haven't you? I do, I do. Mine's a, uh, a pretty salacious one, uh, a very scandalous one. So this is what people still refer to as Hollywood's greatest betrayal. This was actually a Hollywood scandal I can remember my nan telling me about when I was young. So for someone to still be talking about it, you know, 30, 40 years later, it was obviously pretty juicy at the time. Uh, so this this one involves uh, four people in Hollywood, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Debbie Reynolds, Eddie Fisher and Mike Todd. Now, I think two two of those people probably don't need much of an introduction. I think everybody's <laughs> fairly aware of Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds, both very, very famous actresses of Hollywood's golden era. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor was probably uh, a bit more of a serious actress. I suppose Debbie Reynolds was definitely America's sweetheart, especially after her big debut in Singing in the Rain in 1952 opposite Gene Kelly. Uh, she was really painted as probably Hollywood's sort of wholesome star. She was the girl next door. She was the good girl. Whereas Elizabeth Taylor was a bit more of America's bad girl. Um, 
People may not be as familiar with Eddie Fisher and Mike Todd. Uh, Eddie Fisher was uh, a teen idol in the 1950s. Uh, he was a very popular singer. He had 17 songs in the top 10 between 1950 and 56. And he also hosted two very popular musical variety TV shows in the 1950s. One was called The Eddie Fisher Show. And the other one was strangely called Coke Time with Eddie Fisher, <laughs> which, which was... Sponsored by Coca-Cola, that's where uh, the name okay. obviously comes from. Yeah, it's an unfortunate <laughs> name, isn't it? <laughs> unfortunately, a very strange name uh, in a modern context. Um, and then uh, Mike Todd was a Broadway producer turned film producer. He was a philanthropist and a businessman. He helped found uh, a company called Cinerama, who developed a very early widescreen film uh, process that used three projectors to make one giant image on a big curved screen. He actually left before uh, the release of Cinemarama to make his own widescreen process, which he called the Todd AO process. <laughs> and this was used first in the film adaptation of the musical Oklahoma, uh, apparently most famously remembered because it was used in the 1956 film Around the World in 80 Days, which won the Best, uh, Best Picture Oscar which obviously went to Mike Todd as one of the producers. Uh, it's it's fairly universally considered one of the worst films to win Best Picture, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so the the odd thing about this this scandal is that the four players in it were all actually very close friends. Uh, Mike Todd and Eddie Fisher were best friends and had been best friends for many years. And Elizabeth Taylor and Debbie Reynolds were also extremely close. They uh, sort of both grew up on the MGM lot together. And I think because they were such different actresses with different kinds of personas, they were never against each other for roles. They were never pitted against each other or, or auditioning for the same thing. So it's rare in these days for two actresses, I suppose, to be such good friends. Debbie Reynolds met Eddie Fisher in 1954. There's a lot of rumours around that suggesting Initially, their relationship had been arranged by MGM. I think they thought it was good for both, uh, for, for Debbie Reynolds' career. Um, but by all accounts, Debbie took the relationship seriously and she wasn't necessarily looking at it as a publicity opportunity. She, she did fall head over heels in love with Eddie Fisher. Uh, she's publicly stated later that she was a virgin when she met him. She was absolutely saving herself for marriage while Eddie Fisher was probably the polar opposite <laughs> at this point. At this point, he was four years older than Debbie uh, and definitely far from what you would consider virginal. Uh, he claimed he lost his virginity to a prostitute at the age of 15. Oh, he o openly, openly bragged about being seduced by Marlene Dietrich in a nightclub bathroom. And he had been linked to pretty much every every major star in Hollywood, including uh, a relationship with Judy Garland early on in her career as well. Uh, and so Debbie was apparently warned to stay away from him from many of her close friends. Only uh, a couple of years after that, one year after they met, they, they married in 1955. And only one year later, they gave, uh, Debbie gave birth to their daughter, Carrie. 
by all accounts, almost immediately, he, Eddie Fisher, was a completely absent father. He would disappear for long, unexplained periods of time. He didn't change his touring schedule even in the, you know, immediately after Carrie was born. He was nowhere to be seen. And I think that, that plays into this suggestion that the whole relationship was arranged by MGM because he kind of signed on to marry or to be with Debbie, but not necessarily be a father to a child. I don't think that was ever really part of his arrangement. Uh, apparently she was uh, terribly desperate to try and save their marriage, and I think she thought having a second child would be the answer to doing that. I'm not I'm not sure why. Oh, because, dear. <laughs> you know, according to her biography, she was never a particularly sexual person, so she couldn't... Uh, get the moment for to make a second child. It just never happened. Um, she, I think. I think the biography said something like, you know, we just after Carrie was born, we just we were never in bed together again. It just never happened. Mm-hmm. But one night when she was uh, vacationing in Italy with Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd, uh, Debbie seized her moment, and in her own words, she got her hands on Eddie. And just from that one night together, their second child was conceived. So their other two players, uh, Elizabeth Taylor met Mike Todd in 1956. And at this point, she had already been married twice and was still legally married to her second husband, Michael Wilding, with whom she had had two sons. And at this point, Mike Todd was extremely wealthy. He was... Uh, just on the cusp of a big film career, obviously Around the World in 80 Days had just won Best Picture. He was a big name in the industry. So uh, the two of them coming together you know, made an instant power couple in Hollywood. Makes sense that the two of them would become such close friends as couples, you know, two Hollywood power couples together. So by all accounts, they would socialise together quite a lot. Uh, and as I said, they, they were obviously vacationing together in Italy. They, they, were, they were fairly inseparable as two couples, uh, so much so that when uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd married in 1956 after Elizabeth's divorce from Michael Wilding became final, uh, Eddie Fisher was Mike Todd's best man and Debbie Reynolds was Elizabeth Taylor's matron of honour. But it all came to an abrupt halt on March 22nd, 1958, when Mike Todd was tragically killed in a plane crash in New Mexico. He was on his way to New York City to accept an award, and Elizabeth Taylor was actually meant to be on the plane as well, but she fatefully stayed home due to a cold that evening. Uh, So she... She may have died, had you know, a twist of fate not happened. She may have, she may have perished with her husband that evening. So naturally, she was completely devastated by the news. She, you know, this this was supposedly the love of her life, and he'd been taken away from her, you know, not long after they got married. So she was completely, completely devastated. And Debbie Reynolds, being the you know proper best friend gal pal that she was, she offered to take care of Elizabeth Taylor's three children at her own home while her friend grieved. And as she was taking care of the children, Eddie Fisher was often at Elizabeth Taylor's house comforting his best friend's widow. And uh, sweet, naive Debbie Reynolds thought nothing of it. Mm-hmm. Um as you, as you could probably imagine, you know, she, she obviously thought that, you know, 
uh, Mike Todd was was Eddie Fisher's best friend, there's no way in a, a million years that that he would cross the line and you know take advantage of a grieving widow, particularly the grieving widow of his best friend. It's it's such it's such a shock to to even think that anyone would do that. But uh, just two weeks after Mike Todd's death. Elizabeth Taylor decided she needed to get away from Hollywood for a while. There was, you know, obviously a lot of stories and paparazzi and photographers and all those kinds of things. So she decided to head off to New York City. And Eddie Fisher told Debbie Reynolds that he was heading off on a tour. But in actual fact, he was sitting right beside Elizabeth Taylor on the plane and staying with her at her hotel in New York. Debbie had no idea, and uh, according to her biography, late one evening she was she was thinking about her best friend and and hoping that she was okay, and so she decided just to randomly give her a phone call at the hotel. To her huge surprise, when she rang the when she was connected through to the hotel room, it was actually Eddie Fisher who answered the phone. Uh, apparently Debbie could hear Elizabeth Taylor's voice in the background asking, who is it, darling? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, according to her own words, uh, Debbie Reynolds uh, told her husband, roll over, darling, and let me speak to Elizabeth. (laughs) So I don't think, I think from, from that kind of, you know, dry reaction, I don't think Debbie Reynolds was particularly shocked. Soon after, obviously, news news came out of this affair and Hollywood and the general public were completely stunned by Elizabeth's betrayal and, and both she and Eddie Fisher were fairly crucified by the press. So Elizabeth Taylor gave an interview to infamous gossip columnist Hedda Hopper and she, she was quite open about admitting to the entire affair and not feeling any sorts of guilt about it at all. Uh, she was quoted as saying, you can't break up a happy marriage. I'm not taking anything away from Debbie Reynolds because she never had it. Mm. And when Hedda Hopper asked what Elizabeth Taylor thought Mike Todd would say about the affair, she infamously responded, well, Mike is dead and I'm alive. What do you expect me to do? Sleep alone. So soon after, Eddie Fisher asked Debbie Reynolds for a divorce and uh, the backlash was pretty immediate from all accounts. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor was forced, when she returned to Los Angeles, she couldn't go to her own home because the press were constantly camped outside. It was Eddie Fisher who really suffered the most. His his television show was eventually cancelled by NBC and he was dropped by his music label RCA. She'd obviously played that bad girl image on screen so well that it didn't really matter how she was acting in real life. I, th- I think it, it actually helped play up to that image. Um, her next film, Cat on a Hot Team Roof, featured a fairly you know salacious character on screen, and the film was a massive, massive hit. But there are some some say that she she probably should have won that night. It is a really great performance. Uh, she didn't end up winning. And I think there's some suggestion that maybe this scandal did actually cost her the victory. They were happy to nominate her, but they weren't particularly happy to see her win the award. She was accompanied that evening at the Oscars by Eddie Fisher on her arm. So it obviously caused a huge frenzy because that was one of their first major public appearances together. But only only a few years later, in 1961, she did end up winning Best Actress for Butterfield 8, and she had Eddie Fisher by her side. 
probably the one that benefited the most out of this was Debbie Reynolds. I think they were obviously on her side, particularly now that she would become a single mother of two very young children with, you know, the, the, the responsibility and the weight that comes with that, as well as still trying to have a career in Hollywood and raise two children. She would then go on to an Oscar nomination in 1965 for The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and obviously Debbie had a fairly enduring career all the way up until, you know, her death a couple of years ago that she was, she never lost fame. And then obviously when Carrie became famous, it kind of supplemented her career as well. And she was beloved, you know, from this, this moment of this scandal all the way up into her death. And I think Elizabeth Taylor still was as well. Obviously she would go on to another few marriages and uh, she would become a pretty big, tabloid feature for many many years to come um you know scandal seemed to follow elizabeth taylor throughout her whole life but i don't think she was ever particularly sad about that fact i think she enjoyed being you know it's that it's better to be talked about than Mm. not talked about at all kind of mantra that she definitely followed and then obviously a few years later uh elizabeth taylor would leave eddie fisher for richard burton uh, which was a you know a, a bit of karma there that, that that Eddie Fisher now knew what it was like to have mm. your your partner cheat on you and leave you for someone else and it was I guess it was a bit of karma what what he had done to Debbie Reynolds had come back around. George who was out somewhere there in the dark, who is good to me, whom I revile who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them, who can make me happy and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. Um, I wonder if we'll be talking about the uh, Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt and uh, (laughs) Jennifer Aniston scandal in the same sort of... that's the, the modern, yeah, the, mo- the modern yeah. equivalent, definitely. I think the only, the only difference is that obviously Angelina and Jennifer weren't friends no. in any way. So, uh, moving on then, Lucy, mm-hmm. uh, you've got yeah. an interesting um, mystery. Yeah, so this one gives me the creeps, actually, because, like, it's been so many years and we still don't know what the hell happened, to be honest. So let me just quickly introduce it. So it's the death of Natalie Wood, her drowning. Um, and lots of people know that she was actually terrified of water, so it makes you think, why was she on a boat in the first place? That's mm-hmm. the number one yeah. question. But essentially, Natalie Wood was huge for her time. She was a great child actress, you know, very famously in Miracle on 34th Street. Her career basically skyrocketed from there, um, which took her on two roles in uh, Rebel Without a Cause, The Searchers, West Side Story, these big, iconic films. And she was this beautiful, you know, Hollywood starlet. You know, everybody loved her. She was just such a, a wonderful, like, on-screen presence, you know, just so, so iconic. And to die at the age of 43 is just tragic. You know, it's just absolutely awful. So the events leading up to her death, it's a lot of it is to do with Robert Wagner, actually, which she married twice to her mum's dismay. She wasn't very happy about that, let's put it that way. Um, so they, yeah, they married twice. They were both very highly publicised marriages. She married him once in December 28th, 1957. They then divorced in 1962. Um, and they married again 
1971, I believe. Yes. No, sorry. 72. Yes. So 72 is when they remarry. So that, <laughs> it's kind of this very bizarre gap between mm. her marrying Robert Wagner, her divorcing him, getting with Richard Gregson, and then Wagner again. So it makes you wonder why she went back to him in the first place, frankly. <laughs> but that, that's not really the scandal here. The scandal is why she drowned, honestly. So Wagner was with her at the time. She was making a film called Brainstorm, and she died while on a boat trip to Santa Can- Santa Catalina Island, sorry, aboard Wagner's yacht, The Splendor, which is, you know, it's, it's a red flag already. Like, you know, she's on his yacht. You know, she didn't like the water. She was terrified. How did he mm. coax her onto that yacht in the first place? You know, if I was terrified of water, I'd be like, no, thank you. I'll get the train, you know. I don't want, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be on a boat in the first place. I don't care how luxurious this yacht is, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, she was on this boat with Wagner and Christopher Walken. Obviously, everyone knows Christopher Walken. Um, on the evening of November 28th, 1981. So she was, you know, having a good time with these two. Um, and then she was recovered at 8 o'clock in the morning on November 29th, well, the day after, one mile away from the boat in a dinghy. Um, and she was wearing a nightgown and some socks and um, like a, a, a waterproof jacket. So, you know, she made the conscious decision to get on a dinghy and leave the yacht, which is mm. even more baffling. Mm. You know, did someone put her on that yacht? Did she get on the yacht, her, sorry, the dinghy herself? You know, so she didn't uh, fall off the yacht. She was on a dinghy, which makes you think, hang on a minute. Like, you know, there's just so many questions around this case. And there's just, you know, there's so many theories that I've read online about what happened. Everyone's like, oh, it must have been Wagner. Obviously, some people blame walking. Some people thought that she was, you know, um, sleepwalking and got on a dinghy. I'm not quite sure how that would yeah, happen. Yeah, that's a bit odd. <laughs> you think, how, how on earth, honestly? Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's been one of these things that no matter how much you read into, you honestly can't resolve it. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it does give me the creeps, honestly, because we all have our fears. We all have things we don't want to do. And it just baffles me that, that she would have drowned. I know that there were rows between her and Wagner. Uh, That's right. And mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound, like you're saying, it doesn't sound like it was a very good relationship. I didn't realise she'd oh. been married to oh. him before. Was it the ship's captain gave a, a sort of police report and, and then and then like years later said, actually, I was lying, you know, because I think yeah. he said he didn't hear anything. But you would, you would hear yeah, someone rowing. You yeah. would, you would. And there's so many conflicting statements. Like you could again you could have an entire podcast about these statements. Like none of them none of them add up. They're just insane. It's like, mm. oh I didn't mean that, oh I didn't hear anything or and you yeah. just think honestly, like someone must have heard something. So yeah, this is one of my favourite ones purely because of how eerie it is. And just purely because of and there's all these crazy things about how her mother took her to a um a psychic and the psychic said you're gonna drown one day. Like I'm not Ooh. kidding. Like, and it's oh, just wow. like, what the hell? Like, seriously? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I remember discovering this sort of scandal the first time I saw West Side Story and then sort of started looking into the stars and who they were and just being quite shocked at how, how that, that something could still be so completely unsolved and n- mm-hmm. no no charges laid, no blame laid. And as far as I know, that they are, the case is still open, you know. I think every yep. couple of years... The, the police department will start looking into it again and they'll start interviewing people because obviously Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken are still alive. They're still yep. with us. Both of you have to think that one of them knows exactly what mm. happened and, and has kept quiet on it. And you wonder if maybe 
someday on one of their deathbeds they're going to confess to the whole thing when you know they can finally let it all out and there there be no repercussions for it or or if it will just remain one of those completely unsolved things uh i think it's kind of reminiscent of Mar- marilyn monroe in that there's a, you know so much around her death as well that we still still don't know and yeah. have kind of just accepted we'll never know uh and i think with this that that's why the police are still desperately trying because it's you know it's like the, the players are still here you really have to think one of them knows more than they're letting on yeah I've, I've always thought that and like you know as crude as this is they are actors they've probably perfected being able to mm. lie should they should they want to you know what i mean yeah like, if they really want to yeah. put something under wraps they probably could well interestingly yeah. my one's about a murder um, Yay, murders! <laughs> you shouldn't really say that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yay! Um, no, this That's one, cool to hear about. It is very cool. This is probably mm-hmm. one of the most earlier ones from uh, Hollywood. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of William Desmond Taylor. Yes, I've heard about this oh, one. Okay. Oh, this one's mm-hmm. strange. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is going to... Oh, good, good. I do like this one. This one's a, it's a bit... There's a lot of different suspects, so uh, (laughs) it's going to be a fun one. Uh, I'm just going to set the scene for you, play a bit of uh, 1920s jazz music. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was was February the 1st, 1922, an unusually cold night for Los Angeles. Uh, Despite the fact it was prohibition, uh, director William Desmond Taylor and silent film actress Mabel Norman were enjoying orange blossom gin cocktails. And Ooh, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. Discussing philosophy, uh, Freud, and the movies. They were at uh, Desmond Taylor's uh, bungalow, and it was getting a little bit late, uh, so M- Mabel decided she would leave. As her chauffeur drove off, they blew kisses to one another. Uh, with exception to the murderer, Mabel Norman was the very last person to see William Desmond Taylor alive. Mm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor went back to his apartment, this was about 8pm, and what was thought to be a car backfiring uh, was heard by the neighbours. One neighbour, Faith McLean, uh, went to the window and saw what she first believed to be a man in a long coat wearing a muffler or with his collar turned up and a uh, cap over his face. He looked at her and casually went back inside as if he'd forgotten something. And then she uh, d- later on described that this person had a womanly look, uh, womanly walk and was funny looking. Oh, I don't, know, don't okay. know what she meant by funny looking. <laughs> Maybe they had a big nose, some ears, they, you know, really hairy eyebrows. Uh, doesn't really give details into that. Uh, but they were a suspicious person. Uh, all was quiet until 7.30am the next day when Taylor's houseman, Henry Peavy, arrived at the bungalow and found Taylor lying dead in the living room. Peavy screamed and ran uh, out of the courtyard and chaos ensued as it was the studio who was called first and not the police. Which is oh. very strange. Uh, originally, yeah. yeah, it's really odd. I don't know why you would call the studio first. So maybe there was something to do with this mm. being an actress on their payroll. 
Originally, it was thought that Taylor may have died from natural causes, but once he was turned over, it was noticed that he was lying in a pool of blood, uh, shot once through the back. So it's clear. The back, well. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. Clearly, he's not just you know fallen over and as you know this is <laughs> this is a uh, you know murder. Um, so the yep. rep- representatives from Paramount Studios, where Taylor was employed, came out and seized all the letters they could find, with the exception of some that Taylor had hidden in his riding boots and all the bootleg liquor. Of course, you know can't have anyone finding that liquor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they even instructed. PV to clean up the blood and the apartment, which is very suspicious indeed. By the time the police department had arrived, uh, the Taylor crime scene was severely compromised. So a lot of the evidence had been cleaned up. So, the question is, who killed William? Now, uh, Mabel Norman was the the very last person to see Taylor um, alive. She came to the scene intent on getting letters back that she'd written to Taylor. She originally uh, told officials that she'd returned to get them, not that they meant anything to us, uh, anyone but us, but I feel they might fall into the wrong hands. So, uh, <laughs> this is very... Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> um, ooh, I-, I wonder what were in those letters. <laughs> Why Mabel Norman may have not pulled the trigger... There is a theory that Taylor's death may have been the result of him trying to help her kick her addictions to cocaine and opium. Uh, Taylor arranged for Norman to stay in a facility, which may have been one of the first cases of a celebrity film actor going into rehab. So, uh, <laughs> uh, poor, poor Mabel Norman. She's she's famous for that. So, uh, Oh, bless her. Yeah. Um, so intent was Taylor on keeping away the drug pushers uh, from the studios and the actors, that he headed a commission against drugs, uh, which he was the chairman of the board. Norman alone is said to have spent £2,000 a month, and this is the 1920s, so that's a lot of money, on drugs. Uh-huh. So uh, Taylor definitely wow. tampered with the drug dealer's business, and this was obviously not a very good idea to do. So it could possibly be that uh, this was a hit done by a professional hitman because of uh, Taylor's sort of uh, intervention with the drug dealers. Her body in a weakened state uh, from past abuses for drugs and alcohol, Norman, by all accounts, was a warm and generous friend to many. So I I doubt that she would have done this um, to to a friend that she was very close to. Um, She sadly Mm -hmm. died of uh, tuberculosis in 1930. And it's said that on her deathbed, she asked, I wonder who killed poor Bill Taylor. So the next actress uh, who's a suspect is a, a lady called Mary Miles Minter. Which is a great name, to be honest. I, I love that name. That's, that's an awesome name. Um, she was actually kind of a sort of a Mary Pickford type of actress. So she was very sort of looked like a child, very young. You wouldn't, you know, uh, suspect butter wouldn't melt in her mouth type of thing. So she was just 20 years old, but had a massive crush on William Desmond Taylor, who was at uh, age 49. So old enough to be her dad. 
she had written him lots of letters professing her undying love for him and some of these letters were made public after the murder which brought her much embarrassment there were also handkerchiefs with the initials mm and a pink ground, uh, nightgown uh, which was said to be hers that were found in a bungalow <laughs> Although the nightgown didn't have any identification on it, and at one point Minta issued a challenge that she would give a thousand dollars to anyone who could produce this nightgown with her initials. No one could. Uh, Minta had had visited Taylor on more than one occasion, slipping out the house late at night after her mother, Charlotte Shelby, uh, um, had been uh, asleep. She threw herself at Taylor when he reportedly tried to let her down gently explained to her that uh, he was old enough to be her father Uh, so could this possibly be the reason that she shot him Uh, because he kept sort of uh, you know um, trying to throw her off and say that he wasn't interested Um, well she had blonde hair and three long blonde hairs were found on Taylor's jacket And they were determined by the police to be those of Mary Miles Minter after matching them with the hairs left in a hairbrush at the studio where she and Taylor worked. It's possible that um, you know, she went to hug him and maybe they had patched things up. She'd let on that she was, you know, understood that they couldn't have a relationship. But then, you know, maybe in a sort of jealous fit of rage shot him. It just doesn't add up, really. It would seem very out of character for her. Um, mm. But there is another suspect, and that is actually her mother, Charlotte Shelby. Um, mm. So, in D, um, Sydney D. Uh, Kirkpatrick's book, uh, Case of Killers, it's theorised that Charlotte Shelby, the mother of Mary Miles Minter, killed William Desmond Taylor. The theory is that Shelby dressed as a man and slipped into (laughs) Taylor's bungalow, found Mary there and shot Taylor. Shelby was very possessive of her daughter. It was a classic tale of a stage mother. She wanted to go onto the stage herself, but she lacked any talent to be a success Uh, and instead lived through her daughter. At all costs, Shelby wanted to protect her investment. So uh, if uh, if uh, Mary had gone and married uh, William, if he had been interested, uh, this would obviously have a bad effect on, on her mother's income. This is where it gets a little bit suspicious. Reportedly, later on, it is said that Shelby is said to have burst into Taylor's office and screamed, if I ever catch you hanging around Mary again, I'll I'll blow your goddamn brains out. So she'd even threatened him before and had shown up at his bungalow late one night with her her revolver tucked into the long sleeve of her gown, demanding to know whether Mary was there. So Uh, we know she had a gun as well. We know that she had access to that, so she could have done it. You know? She could have. Yeah. Oh, dear. And I think that... She had wanted to be an actress herself, so maybe dressing up was something that, you know, she liked to do, pretend mm-hmm. to be someone else. She could have, mm-hmm. you know, easily obtained, you know, a disguise or something, male clothes. Um, she knew the entrance to it, you know, his, 
where he lived and everything, knew what she could get. Like, it was a quiet street, so... Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1937 that she was questioned uh, about the case. Mm-hmm. It was found out that Shelby was not at home at the night of the killing. Oh. So, there is one more suspect now. now. So this is very oh, wow. interesting. I wow. know. This gets. <laughs> this is such a, a crazy. So many. There's so many, but this one, I think this one will be. Um, this is who I think it is. Um, <laughs> so the next suspect, Edward Sands. William Desmond Taylor had the misfortune of hiring sociopath Edward Sands, aka aka Edward Snyder, as his houseman in 1920. Sands pretended to be British, uh, a Cockney although he was actually born in Ohio. So uh, I can just try and picture this. All right there, I'd like to get a job, please. This was the days before employee uh, background checks. So how was Taylor supposed to know that Sands had been deserted, had deserted from the Navy and had re-enlisted using different names? Sands was charged with fraud and embezzlement in 1915. Who later enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve in 1970, stole an automobile and wrecked it. He got off by saying he would pay for the damages and then deserted before they could come after him if they wanted him. Um, and then in 1919, he enlisted in the Navy again <laughs> and was assigned to the fin- uh, finance office of four places. He forged a cheque payable to himself for $481 and then forged his own discharge papers. Making oh, my that. God. Yeah. So he's already a shady character. This isn't off to a good start for him, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that he, like, uh, no, he got discharged from the Navy and then went back into the Navy with a fake name. That's just like... And then he discharged himself, <laughs> technically. <laughs> so ridiculous. I know. Anyway, he found his way to Hollywood, where uh, he was employed by Taylor. Um, everything went well, first off. However, in 1921, when Taylor took a trip to Europe, Sands forged $5,000 in checks and stole and wrecked Taylor's car. You know, classic. classic <laughs> As you do. <laughs> you know, classic Sands. He's already done it before, you know. Uh, uh, you know, old dogs, uh, you know, you can't treat, uh, teach them new tricks and all that. Um, he also stole um, some jewellery and Taylor's Russian gold-tipped cigarette case. Uh, Sands was said to have mailed the pawn tickets uh, full of jewellery back to Taylor under Taylor's uh, real name, William C. Dean Tanner, with a note saying, Sorry to inconvenience you uh, temporarily. Also, observe the lesson of forced sale of assets. A Merry Christmas and a Happy and Prosperous New Year, alias Jimmy V. Handwriting analysis confirmed that this note was written by Sands. It was also shown that Sands knew Taylor's real identity. Uh, This was an issue because Taylor had deserted his wife and children. So, Taylor was not a good guy either. He had some... He had a shady past as well. Everybody yeah. seems to. Um, before the murder, Taylor had been troubled with phone calls. Someone had been calling him late at night and would hand, hang up. It seems that they were checking to see if he was home. Uh, the night before Taylor's murder, he was, uh, had shown his tax preparer. Marjorie Berger, five, five million 
in cash that he kept. Um, it was no, sorry, five thousand. Ah, oh, there's only five thousand, but probably the equivalent of five million <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, mm. that's a lot. <laughs> I, I added some extra zeros to make it sound a bit more. <laughs> Um, however, that cash was not found after Taylor's death, yet on his body was $78 and a diamond ring. No other valuables were taken. So, did Sans come back and get uh, in order to get more money? Uh, this turned obviously violent. Uh, William was shot in the back, uh, so it could be, you know, it was theorised that he had been embracing someone, but what if he'd been struggling with someone? And it doesn't, I don't know, crimes of passion. So I kind of like the idea that maybe uh, Edward Sands came back uh, in order to try and get some more money out of it. Because he just seemed to be the type that would, you know, he's, he seems very suspicious, a bit, bit odd. But then I kind of also think maybe the mother had mm. something to do with it. What about you guys? It's, it's a hard one, honestly, because I think they all have motives of their own, honestly, like, you know, for different yeah. reasons. I would rule out the first woman, I've already forgotten her name, sorry. The one who's. <laughs> Mabel, the, 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 Mabel Norman. Yes, 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 the one who died of TB, yeah. So I, I don't think she would have done it, personally. The other ones I feel are all a bit shady in my books, especially the mum of. Um, <laughs> The other yeah. Yeah. I'm really bad with names. You probably noticed this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't trust her at all, considering she threatened him, you know, held a gun to him and said, basically, I'm going to shoot you. It's kind of like, ooh, it's a bit, you know, I don't really trust that woman, quite frankly, but mm-hmm. it's a tough one, honestly. What about you, Doug? I think that that's definitely the most sort of, I guess, fun theory of the mother. Like, mm-hmm. I, you, you you can picture stage mothers are, are, are pretty ruthless. Pretty ruthless, yeah, you know. Actually. They they will do anything for anything. And I think if she was kind of looking to leave her mother potentially, or mm. or even maybe she went there to try and get him to get more roles for his daughter and yeah. uh, for her daughter. And and you know, he said maybe said she's not very talented, or he insulted her, and then he went to leave the and she shot him in the back like you can it's yeah. a very you know uh chicago-esque type thing you know it's that that yeah. you can't leave and, yeah. and i'll shoot you before you do kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. and i think maybe the studio knew something yeah mm. they covered mm. it up because they obviously if they were called first yeah, that, yeah. that's yeah. so strange they yeah. got to they got to it first and you know, yeah. you just like a ruthless stage mother, a ruthless studio would do anything oh, to cover yeah. up a scandal and and put us put an end to something, so that so that no one would find out the truth. If there was something really shocking, they would obviously have a vested interest just to to stop that from being made public as well. So I mean, mm. that, that's the that's the big key here that they were called first. They were the first ones to kind of yeah, have I don't access. trust that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't ever trust a movie studio. Um, <laughs> and, ever. and certainly don't call them uh, when, no. you, when you come across a body. Uh, always call the police. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, the second lesson of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll get so many lessons here. Don't trust a cheater. Don't go on a yacht if you're scared of water. <laughs> and don't, kill, don't call the studio if you find a dead body. Um, <laughs> so um, just to so finish up the sh- um, show uh, I went to Twitter and asked for people's sort of favourite scandals although I suppose the word favourite's not 
you know, <laughs> not the best word, should you? Probably the, the ones they find most interesting. And I've got some really yep. good ones, which I didn't realise were certain scandals. I had to go look them up myself. So thanks for that, guys. We had from uh, Cinemass, how about the George Reeves potential murder? That's Ooh. an interesting one, isn't it? The, uh, the um, gentleman who played the original Superman. Steve, is that the, the, the yeah, person? Oh, yeah. I don't know about this one. This is this is news to me. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Well, apparently it was the suicide. That was what the uh, official call it. Yeah. But then there's a lot of yeah. That this one's going to be one that we have to discuss for next time. But (laughs) for sure, definitely one that's very interesting. Um, I think it's it's sort of similar to Marilyn Monroe in that that it was ruled a suicide, but there's a lot to suggest mm-hmm. some other things about it. And, and so I think that that's why that one's remained yes, a, think, a little bit of a mystery. Yes, and I think they made a film about it, uh, Hollywood Land. Yeah, yeah, Story Ben Affleck. Ben, oh. ben Affleck, who mm. went on to play Batman. <laughs> so they kind of missed... Oh, yes. I love that, I love yeah. that. <laughs> um, Joel said that... Um, Murder mysteries has always caught his attention. He found this. He suggested the ba- uh, Black Dahlia again. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Yes, that's absolutely gruesome and, and very mm-hmm. strange. And uh, talk about suspects. There's hardly any suspects in that one. Mm-hmm. So that's a real mystery. He also said uh, the Charles Manson murders. Of course, yeah. Uh, again, you know, uh, really shocked the foundations of Hollywood. So, and he said Natalie Wood as well. Yeah. Like we said, it came up quite a few times. Um, mm. Samuel Horson, he said the story of Fatty Arbuckle is an interesting mm. one. And how the media then sort of, uh, he was found not guilty, but the media destroyed his career as a result. Um, so get, these are all very interesting ones, which uh, I'm, yeah. I wish we could talk about, but I think we'll be here all night. Uh, <laughs> Nikki Newton uh, Plater said Olivia Thomas's death, the Charlie Chaplin and his scandals with his many uh, underage wives. Yes, there was more than just one. Uh, the, uh, Lana Turner and uh, again, Black Dahlia. Uh, one that we really should discuss maybe for our next podcast. Mm. Gina said Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher. Oh, there, you there we go. And uh, also she said, although it's not a Hollywood scandal or mystery, uh, Agatha Christie's Missing Days is an interesting one. And of course, O.J. Simpson. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. That that one is huge. You could again, you could be here all night with that one. <laughs> we all know about that one. Yeah. Well, this has uh, put me in the mood to do uh, a follow-up podcast uh, where we take some more scandals because I think we've got there are so many. There's plenty more. Yeah, There's There's plenty, plenty more. more. Yeah. And I suspect mm. by the time that we get around to doing another podcast together, the three of us, there'll probably be another scandal. To there'll discuss. be another one. <laughs> oh, yeah, there'll be like a thousand more. Yay, more scandals. <laughs> more content for our podcast. Um, <laughs> so uh, I just want to say a, a huge thank you to Lucy. Um, where can we find you again, Lucy? Yes, yeah, so you can find me on my blog. It's lucygoestohollywood.com or at Twitter at lgthblog. Brilliant. Definitely check out uh, Lucy's stuff or else. <laughs> and uh, Doug, where can we find you? 
You can find me at Filmonomy as well and on my own website, The Jam Report, which is thejamreport.com. And on Twitter, I'm at It's Doug Jam. There we go. It's nice and simple. It's Doug Jam. Yes. Sounds delicious, actually. Doug Jam. <laughs> <laughs> so does The Jam Report, which people think, you know, is about the breakfast condiments. <laughs> but, you know, it's obviously a play on my surname. But I think some people pronounce it Jameson, so they don't really get the connection between oh. Jam Report and Jam. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. You can't explain it. It's a, it's a <laughs> my logo is a bit of popcorn to try and really sell it. It's like, no, this is about movies. This isn't about jam. I'm going to read about Are you sorry? Are you kidding? What's your statement? All I'd say is, don't my choo-choo jump the track. I'd give my life to bring him back. Stay away from jazz and liquor. And the men who play for fun. That's the thought that came upon me when we both reached for the gun. 